0: Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning in March. And you get the feeling these mornings that uh, spring is not too far away. Of course, having said that, it'll, it'll snow or something in the next few days. But the snows that come this time of year usually don't last that long. And before you know it, be allergy season and <laughs> I know, all of those things. Anyway, uh, I'm uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to share God's uh, Word with you, and uh, I'd like us to pray before I uh, direct you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the Book of Revelation. But let's uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to delve into your Word. We thank you that you have given us the Scriptures, that you've preserved them for us, that we possess them in a the translation that we can read. And we pray now that your spirit, who inspired the biblical writers so long ago, uh, would open up the truth uh, that they have penned for us and help us to understand what it means and then help us to see how it applies to our lives. Uh, We pray that we would do business with you this day. We pray that your word would encourage us and challenge us. And we pray that we would come away with a fresh appreciation of who you are. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Please turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 4. I know what some of you may be thinking, oh, Revelation. (laughs) Uh, Revelation is a book that has suffered many things at the hands of many people, including many Christian uh, people. And that's unfortunate. Uh, Revelation is, I think, viewed by many, at least this is what they uh, tell me when I speak uh, on the book, that it's a book that they may have looked at uh, in the past. Sometimes people, it's the first book of the Bible they try to read when they become Christians. Not the not the best idea. Of course, any portion of scripture uh, is worth reading. But uh, Revelation, really, to understand it, you've got to start back in Genesis and read all the way through to the end of the story. Uh, If you're going to read uh, Tolkien's great trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, you don't start in the last chapter of the third book. Uh, You'll do much better if you start at the beginning of the story. And so it is uh, with the book of Revelation. Uh, It is uh, sometimes seen by people as difficult because of the nature of the literature. It's a combination of prophetic and apocalyptic literature, which simply means uh, it's very symbolic, very uh, graphic. Uh, It's full of images. It's meant to be read, but it's also meant to be seen with the imagination and uh, heard uh, with the ears of the heart. And if we do that, we will discover that the book is not some form of Christian science fiction. Uh, It is really uh, a masterpiece that directs attention uh, to the triune God, to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, and uh, what uh, they have done uh, to bring salvation uh, to God's people. And the book is full of hope, and it's a book I think that needs to be uh, re-examined in the 21st century Uh, We're living in days where I think a lot of people have lost hope, and I think the younger generation coming up uh, is very uh, concerned, and rightly so, with what lies ahead. A good dose of a uh, proper reading of Revelation is the cure for those ills, and I hope that we'll get a sense of that this morning. Revelation uh, 4, I'll begin at verse 1 and read through uh, to the end. that shone like an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. One of the blessings of going away on vacation... I know this is the end of March break for elementary schools and high schools and perhaps some others. Uh, One of the blessings of going away on vacation and and coming back or going on a retreat or to a conference is that you can forget about the world for a while. It's becoming increasingly difficult to do that because of all of our electronic devices, uh, but in the ideal world, uh, that's what happens. However, when you return home and you turn on the television, you check your news apps, you're quickly reminded that we live on a very uh, troubled planet. Uh, Wars and rumors of wars persist. There are natural disasters, hurricanes and floods and volcanoes and and the like. Uh, There are terrorist attacks. There are market Financial market upheavals. Uh, there's certainly no shortage of political uh, turmoil and intrigue. I mean, just think about the headlines of the past week. Think about what you would see if you were to go home and, and turn on the television this afternoon or later this evening and watch the news. Think about what will uh, be uh, in the uh, headlines tomorrow and throughout the days of this week. We live in a troubled world. We live in a world in which many people, I think, are very anxious. And this uh, trouble that we experience uh, comes to us whether or not we are Christians or non-Christians. In fact, sometimes being a Christian can make matters worse and you see that if you go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and you see uh, the Lord addressing seven churches that existed in Asia Minor in the first century and you see that uh, these churches in one way or another struggled with various uh, difficulties. Uh, other times, uh, the problems that we experience as human beings, we experience regardless of our faith or lack of faith, simply because uh, we are citizens of planet Earth. Uh, Revelation, chapter 4, and I might add chapter 5, because they're really a unit, but we're just going to have time to look at at chapter 4 today. Revelation uh, 4 and 5 are wonderful to study uh, in a world like ours. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Uh, You may know, you may recall, that the book begins with a wonderful vision of the Son of Man, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. Uh, The book of Revelation is his revelation, a revelation that he gave to the last living apostle, the apostle uh, John. Uh, Then there are seven letters to seven churches in which the Son of Man, the risen Lord, addresses the churches pastorally, individually. It's never a one-size-fits-all kind of proposition. He knows uh, his sheep. He knows his people. And whether he's uh, speaking to the people in Ephesus or Pergamum or Sardis or Laodicea, uh, he has something very specific uh, to say to each one. When we get to chapter 4 and uh, chapter 5, we encounter uh, what I would call bedrock truths. Uh, We're reminded of things that we must never forget uh, if we're going to live joyful lives in this world and if we're going to live productive lives as Christians. Chapters 4 and 5 really anchor everything that's going to take place in the rest of the book of Revelation. If you don't understand what's going on in 4 and 5, what's happening in 6 through 22 is going to remain mysterious uh, to you. If chapters 2 and 3, those letters to the churches, if they diagnose uh, a number of problems or warn of future persecution and suffering, chapters 4 and 5 present the cure. This is what believers must do, whether they live in the first century or in the 21st century. This is what they must do. This is what they must remember. This is what they must meditate on. They must incorporate these truths into their worldview uh, if they're going to live a life pleasing to God in this world. Well, as we look at chapter 4, there are a number of uh, lessons that we need to learn, a number of things that we need to see. And the first lesson comes to us in the very first verse of the chapter, verse 1, and we're told there that after this, John says he looked, and there before him was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice he had first heard speaking To him, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. We're being told here that as Christians, we must learn to look at life from the perspective of heaven. The book of Revelation rests fairly heavily on the Old Testament. This is not always well understood. In fact, the book of Revelation is full of either direct or indirect quotations or allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. And in particular, the book of Daniel and uh, books like Ezekiel. But it's not restricted to just those books. Uh, Genesis through Malachi, there, there are just innumerable illustrations to the Old Testament. And when we look to interpret the words in the book of Revelation, the first place that we should always look is to previous biblical revelations. Shall we look to the Old Testament, and we can even look to the rest of the New Testament to some degree. Uh, if we fail to do that, if we go outside of the Bible looking for uh, interpretation, if we try to read the book of Revelation in light of the Toronto Star, for instance, we're going to make a mess of it. And that's what's been attempted in the past. People uh, have misused this book and therefore have not benefited from it as they should. Uh, We're told that John sees a door that has been opened for him in heaven. After this, he says, after the visions of uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he sees a door standing open in heaven. This is not a reference to the secret rapture of the church. Rather, it is Jesus calling John into heaven. He is calling John to come up into the control center of the universe. And from that lofty perspective, John will be able to see what must take place after this this is a biblical theme this idea of of revelation being given on a mountaintop Uh, we could think i can just pull a number of of mountains off the top of my head going back into the book of genesis mount moriah where abraham was was told to sacrifice his son his only son And God uh, uses that event to reveal to Abraham that he will provide the sacrifice uh, that is necessary. We can think of Mount Sinai, where God uh, gave his law to the children of Israel and entered into a a covenant relationship uh, with them. We can think of Mount Zion, where uh, God reigns through the Davidic king. We can think even of what is described in Matthew's gospel as a mountain that Jesus went up on to teach. Jesus being pictured as the new Moses and and he opens his mouth and what's recorded for us is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We can think of the Mount of Transfiguration where our Lord uh, meets with Moses and Elijah and on that mountain Discusses, according to Luke, uh, his exodus, which must take place at uh, Jerusalem. Here, the Apostle John is called up into heaven. Come into this very special place. Uh, He is being given a tour uh, behind the scenes. Uh, He is being shown something that that, uh, people don't often get a chance to see. And he's being shown it in order that he might tell us about what he has seen so that we might benefit from the vision as well. When it says he will see what takes place after this, he's uh, utilizing language that's found in Daniel. We don't have time to track it out uh, this morning, but he's uh, using language that speaks about the last days. Uh, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this, that is, during the last days. Uh, The last days referring to the period of time between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes referred to as the gospel age, the church age. Uh, The exact terminology, theological terminology, is not important as long as we understand that it's referring to this period of time that began with the incarnation of our Lord and the inauguration of the kingdom and will end when he returns in glory and in power at the end of the age. This image of heaven being opened and uh, us uh, being able to see what otherwise we couldn't see uh, also uh, rests on a passage like Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1. That's how Ezekiel's vision begins. Come up and I will show you uh, what you need to know. Uh, or even in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized and he begins his, his earthly ministry. The heavens are opened and, and a voice is heard. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That in conjunction with the descent of the Spirit. And uh, another interesting passage is in, is in uh, Acts chapter 10, where Peter, waiting for lunch, Goes up on the rooftop, falls into a trance, and heaven is opened, and a, a sheet is is let down. And on this sheet are all kinds of of clean and unclean animals. And Peter is told to get up and to eat. And he says, no, Lord, I I, I can't eat of these animals. Some of them are unclean. Peter, what I have cleansed, don't you call unclean? And this prepares the way for... Uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the New Covenant community. A community composed not only of believing Jews and Samaritans, but wonder of wonders, Gentiles as well. Uh, John says he hears the voice that had been speaking to him initially, sounding like a trumpet, which picks up uh, again, the book of Exodus and the giving of the law, where you have the mountain shaking and rumbling and, and uh, the sound of God's voice like a trumpet, something important uh, is being said. Well, the, the lesson is this. If you want to see and know what is going on in our day and age, you have to look at life from the perspective of heaven. Traditional media and social media can only take you so far. Teachers and professors, uh, for all of their wisdom, uh, can only take you so far. Uh, Business and and, uh, financial analysts are are in the same boat. Uh, If uh, any one of them could reliably predict the future, uh, they would have retired long ago, ridiculously wealthy, Uh, but they continue to work because such uh, prognostications are are very uh, difficult. And of course, we know that politicians and uh, pollsters are always kind of bungling around trying to figure out what in the world uh, is going on. A, A Christian who is informed by Scripture has, according to this passage, a superior vantage point. But we need to ask ourselves this morning, Are we taking advantage of this information, this revelation? Sadly, our perspective is often very, very horizontal. We stumble along. We get so downcast, so discouraged. It it seems that things are going from bad to worse, and that more and more quickly. Well, this morning, if you've lost your way, you're not sure what is coming next then you need to follow John into this heavenly throne room. Well, we're told in the second place that at the center of the universe, there is a king's throne, verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and and ruby. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. He's in the spirit. This is the only way you're going to get this kind of revelation. It won't be found anywhere else. It's spiritually uh, given. Uh, He's in the spirit. He's in a spiritual timeless dimension. And, uh, And what does he see as he's caught up in the spirit? He sees a very special throne. Now, in order to have us appreciate the significance of this let me state it negatively notice what he doesn't see he doesn't see a parliament he doesn't see a House of Commons he doesn't see a Senate or a Congress he doesn't see a college or a university or a hospital or sports stadium or a restaurant or a bar he doesn't see a theater he doesn't see a television studio he doesn't even see a supercomputer what he does see is a throne with someone sitting on it. And the symbolism is not difficult to understand. What John is, is, uh, is being brought to see is that in the center of this heavenly control room, there is a king. And not just any king, the king the heavenly king of kings and lord of lords. Now you say, all right, uh, so what? Well, this is actually a a very significant uh, bit of information. Today, as probably in John's day, it seems many times that we're living in the times of the judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that four times in that book, This refrain is repeated, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his eyes. Oh my goodness, you'd think you were talking about Canada in the 21st century. We know we have no king in Canada, and we know that consequently everybody does, or seems to do, what is right in their own eyes. And it's so easy for us, looking at things from a horizontal, from an earthly point of view, to conclude that, well, this is the way it is, and there's nothing else to be said. But you see, from the heavenly vantage point, we're reminded that this is not how it is. In fact, there is a king who sits upon his throne. We're not alone in the universe. We are not a law unto ourselves. The throne, of course, uh, symbolizes God's authority to reign and to rule, in contrast to other thrones. There are many thrones in this world. There are many centers of power. Ah, but John sees the throne of thrones and the king of kings and the ultimate center of power. And as I've said, he's not just a king. He is the most wonderful king imaginable. And this is communicated by means of symbolic language. He is described as looking like jasper and ruby. What in the world does that mean? And he's encircled by a a rainbow that, of course, a rainbow contains a variety of colors, but when you look at this rainbow and, you, and, and, its, and its image comes to you, or perhaps uh, what you're left with as you come away from this rainbow is the color green, like an emerald, shining like an emerald. Well, what in the world does this mean? What is it meant to communicate? Well, Jasper in the book of Revelation is a stone. Jasper in the book of Revelation is linked to the new creation. If, if there's one stone that, that uh, characterizes the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God at the end of the book, it is Jasper. It is the first of the 12 stones. And according to Revelation 21.11, it, it captures the glory of God, which is part of the new Jerusalem. Ruby was a blood-red stone. And it may indicate, scholars debate this, but it may indicate the wrath of the king. Uh, The wrath of the king that is the inevitable consequence of his holiness when it comes into contact with sin and rebellion. You know, wrath is an interesting uh, characteristic of God. Wrath is something we would never see, we would never know, If there were not something called sin, God is holy, and this passage is going to affirm it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He has always been holy, He will always be holy. Wrath is the expression of His holiness in the face of sin and rebellion. No sin and rebellion, there'd be no expression of wrath. He would still be holy, but this dimension of His holiness, this reaction of His holiness, would, would, uh, would not be known. But it is known in our world because as the Bible makes clear in Genesis chapter 3, things are not the way they were meant to be. There is a turning away from God, a profound turning away from God that has dramatically shaped the human story and, uh, and us as human beings. The rainbow that shone like an emerald speaks undoubtedly of God's mercy and his grace. See, where where you get that from? well if you go back uh, and you, you you look at the biblical use of rainbows they've been co-opted today uh, and and have been put to other uses which is which is a, a nasty shame because there's absolutely nothing wrong with the rainbow we need to To uh, seize the rainbow back and say, just a second, uh, in the Bible it does not refer to a a mishmash of, 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 of human rebellion, rather it refers to the mercy and grace of God. After preserving alive Noah and his family, instead of wiping out the race, God preserves Noah and his family, and with him, the promise of salvation. This is grace. This is mercy. And puts his bow in the sky. He will no longer declare warfare on mankind by means of a flood. Now be careful. There's fire that will cleanse the earth one day. But it will not be destroyed as it was in the great deluge by the waters of a flood. And the rainbow is a reminder of that. And its green afterglow or, or the, the brilliance of an emerald uh, speaks perhaps of life. It is green with life. Uh, mercy and grace bring life, right? In a a fallen world, in a world characterized by death and decay, the only hope for life is in the mercy and in the grace of God. And John sees these things in the spirit. I must hasten on. The third thing we're shown in this uh, chapter is that God reigns over the hosts of heaven. Let me read again for you verses uh, uh, 4 through 8a. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox. The third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. The 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones probably refer to an exalted order of angels who represent the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12, 12, 24, something along those lines. You don't have to have all of the the details of the symbolism nailed down to appreciate the main thrust of these visions. It's always important to remember that. If these are angels, they're dressed in white, which indicates their purity. They have crowns of gold on their head, which means they have royal status uh the throne is uh is a throne from which proceeds flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder this is just a symbolic way can't you see this of of um of saying it's an active throne this isn't like going into a museum and saying well there's a throne on which the king once sat no this is a throne you come near this throne and and the ground starts to shake there, there, there's thunder, there's lightning. This is a living active throne. There's power that goes out from this throne. This king is not just a puppet king. He's not a, a, a ceremonial king. No, he really reigns. He really rules. You get too close to that throne and you could die. And the sea before this king is as clear as crystal. In the ancient world, they had uh, reflective surfaces that were semi-opaque. Uh, it, it's in, in more recent times that we have surfaces that, unfortunately, as we get older, accurately reflect all of our our our, uh, our problems, right? All those things that we need nipped and tucked and so forth. But uh, uh, in the ancient world, this would have been an unusual thing, as clear as crystal. So you've got this throne, this rumbling throne, and then out in front of it, you've got this glass. You know, Canadians can understand this is like a hockey rink after the Zamboni's gone over it, right? <laughs> it's nice and, nice and clear. And, and, of course, scholars debate, well, what does it refer to? Uh, there's a number of possibilities it could refer to God's holy separation from, from everything else that he has made. He's in a class by himself. That's certainly true. Uh, It could speak of of his sovereign control over the nations. The nations in the Old Testament are like the sea that's foaming and agitated. But here in the presence of God, the sea is as clear as crystal. Not a ripple on the waters. The king is in complete control of the situation. Or it may be as clear as crystal because it reflects the beauty of of his holiness. Uh, as you approach the throne, you're struck with the awesome beauty, and I, I use that word deliberately, of the, of the living God. The four living creatures, angels or cherubim or something like that, that represent God's creation. And so you have the lion, uh, representing perhaps nobility, the ox, strength, strength. This is, next one's a bit of a stretch. Man intelligence. <laughs> that's, that's what commentators say, but okay, we'll go with that. Man intelligence. And, and the eagle, swiftness, right? But, but the, these, these beings represent uh, the created realm. Uh, but they are symbols. They have six wings and they're covered with eyes. Say, like, what a strange sight. But, but what, what does that convey? It conveys creatures who see and it conveys creatures who are always ready to do the will of their Father in heaven. This is what we're told to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. These beings stand ready to do the will of their God. Again, you see what valuable information this is Uh, this is not how it appears on earth I mean you look around uh, Canada even on a beautiful day like this you you look anywhere in the earth and and this is is not how it seems this teaches us that there is when you go back 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 behind the scenes there is order in the universe There is a king, and his word is law as well as life. There's nothing more important than being in right right relationship with this this person. Everything revolves around him. We might think the world is man centered. When we come into this throne room, we find out no, no, it's not. It is, in fact, king centered, it is God centered. We discover that truth is not relative. How in the world could it be relative when there is one who declares what is right and wrong? If we're not on side with him, we are offside. because he reigns. he rules. Morality is not what people are being told in universities today. It is not some kind of human convention. This is what, you know, our youth are being told over and over and over again. Uh, Morality, all these ways of doing things that we've inherited from the past, just conventions that human beings have come up with. This says, no, no, no. No, no, back behind uh, all of these uh, professors and their books and their lectures is one who says, this is the way, walk ye in it. There is one who says there is a way that seems right unto a man, and the end thereof are the ways of death. There is one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes unto the Father but by me. Well, lastly, we are told that heaven is a place of ceaseless worship and praise. Look at verse 8b. Through 11, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. You know what? These verses interpret the vision. This often happens in Revelation. We we try to make sense of what's going on. We go to the Old Testament to try to uh, get uh, a context for the imagery. But... If we continue to read in the book, it will often interpret itself. And that's exactly what's going on in verses 8b to 11. What is the the symbol all about? What is the the vision all about? It's, It's about this. The king, or God, is holy, holy, holy. That's what it's about. If you don't see that, you've not understood the vision which means there's none like him. That's, that's what holiness means, first and foremost. It's not ethical, first and foremost. It's ontological, we say in seminary, which is, which is to say God is unique. He's in a category by himself. There is no one like God. That's, that's what you're saying when you say he's holy, holy, holy. And then related to that, you're saying he's spotless and pure. Absolutely, through and through, He is, these beings say, the Lord God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for him. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. That is, he's in complete control over over history. He is active in history. World history, but not just world history, my history and your history. He is the coming one, it says. In his time, according to his schedule, He lives forever and ever. He is eternal. He has life in himself. This is is something we must never forget. We are dependent. We're dependent on so many different things, but ultimately we're dependent upon God. If God were to cease to uphold us and sustain us, we wouldn't just die, we would cease to exist. The universe that he called into being in the beginning would disappear it doesn't have any staying power on its own it can't tap into any hidden resources it's in him we live and move and have our being he alone lives forever and forever and he we we read here created all things he is worthy of glory he's worthy of honor He's worthy of thanks. And the proper expression of creatures who who have grasped this by the Spirit is to lay their crowns before him. What what are these beings doing when they're doing that? Well, they're just they're just coming into the presence of one who is greater. That's what they're doing. See, they're 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 kings in their own right, but they're just little kings. They're kings that reign by divine appointment and by divine authority. And when they come into the presence of the king of kings, they say, oh, I take my crown off and I put it down. And by so doing, they're acknowledging that, Lord, any authority that I have, any authority that I exercise is only authority that has been granted to me by your grace. You are the king, and I gladly acknowledge you. Well, it's my prayer. That the truths of this vision would impact my life, but also impact your lives. We need to learn to look at life through the lens of Revelation uh, chapter 4. We really, really do. Or to put it another way, we need to become spiritual mountain climbers. Our problem is that we live on the plain, or even worse, we live in the valley. And, and we lose perspective. And the point of this passage is for us to regain perspective. And the only way you regain it is to, is to go up high, to be caught up in the spirit, into the heavenly throne room and to see this wonderful, wonderful thing. This past week, Stephen Hawking was called from this life into the next. Brilliant man amazing life in so many ways, but someone who declared himself (coughs) over and over to be an atheist. For all of his brilliance, he missed what he knows now is of most importance. That behind all the mysteries of black holes and the dimensions of the universe, there is a living God whose presence can really only be seen and appreciated by the poor and humble in heart who may not be the smartest people in all the world but who by God's grace and the enabling power of the spirit are able to see what the wise and the mighty and the noble have often missed. One question remains, and I'll leave you with this. Revelation 4 gives us this heavenly throne room, this grand picture of God. But a question could be asked, how will God carry out his purposes on the earth? How will this holy, holy God enter into a relationship with unholy, unholy, unholy sinners? And the answer to this question is reserved for the next chapter. And, and uh, I just need to mention it because it, 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 it's important to, to keep these two. These things are a unit. Chapter 4, we see the Father himself seated upon his throne, reigning in glory and power. But in order for that to do us any good, someone else must be brought into the picture. And you know who that is? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the lamb who has been slain. He's the only one who can execute the will of God. And He's the only one that can do us sinners good. And he's the one that Revelation 4 would have us pursue. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of the book of Revelation. I pray that you would... Write it upon our hearts, and I pray that you would help us to grasp its truthfulness. Uh, catch us up into heaven itself. Open our eyes that we may see. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.